You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Rich King, longtime sportscaster for WGN-TV Chicago, and recent author of the best-selling book about his wife entitled My Maggie. Thank you, Rich, for joining us. Doctor, thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking about Maggie's lifelong struggle with congenital hearing loss and being visually impaired, and then her battle with melanoma, breast cancer, and ultimately ovarian carcinoma. Rich, what made you decide to write her story, and of course also your story at this time? Well, I'll tell you, Doctor, the thing that did it was Maggie's life was inspirational to so many people, and I wanted to inspire other people, especially sight-impaired or blind people, that they could have the same kind of wonderful life Maggie had, despite all the ailments that you mentioned. She had a wonderfully happy life. When she was healthy, she was very happy. That's the reason I wrote it. It also became a love story in the process, and I think that's also become one of the main themes of the book, is that people can have long-term loves, and it grows and gets better and better and better and becomes almost out of the physical world. And it was a wonderful experience I had with her. And I wanted to impart that upon other people. You know, you mentioned the love story aspect, and we know historically that people who are married to people who suffer from disabilities, their marriage often ends in divorce. Some people say as many as 80%. What was different about your particular lifelong relationship? I think it's the way we were raised. I mean, we were both raised to be committed. I know I was raised Roman Catholic, which in the 50s was a very strict religion. And if you made a vow, you kept it. Even though later in life I lost my religion, I still kept the same vow. The vow was sacred to me. And I love Maggie. And I I was asked that question many times in the book tour, and I never once thought of leaving her because I loved her so much. And you, you love a person, you, you never even think of it. And despite all the problems she had, love grew. And I think when your adversity does one of two things, it either breaks the marriage up or it makes it more solid. In our case, it made it more solid. And I'll tell you, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful union we had. We were like one person. We saw pretty much eye to eye on everything at the end. Maggie's condition is called Usher syndrome, which means congenital deafness and being visually impaired. Three to six percent of all people who have hearing loss will develop Usher syndrome. It doesn't always take the same form, is that correct? Every case is different and every progression is different. In Maggie's case, she was progressing more slowly than other people. Had she lived, though, she would have gone completely deaf and blind. She, at the end, her hearing was worse than her sight, actually. At the end, we had these hearing aids and an FM system, which I spoke through like a microphone, and her hearing was going really, really bad at the end. Also, her eyesight was diminishing. So she died at age 53. I think had she lived a few more years, she would have gone completely deaf and blind. And that would have been, uh, to her, it would have been a horrible, anybody a horrible thing, but especially to her because she prided herself on in independence. And she still had some degree of independence because she had a cane and she could get around. But being deaf and blind would have been obviously very devastating. For those of you who have not read this marvelous book, would you tell us what Maggie's career choice was initially? Well, she was a registered nurse when she got out of college, or she had two years of college when she was younger, and she graduated, by the way, when she was 50 years old with, with Usher syndrome. But she became a nurse, and she loved being a nurse. So she was a very good nurse. She did a lot of things by memory and by just a sheer determination. But it got so bad, doctor, that she could not read the prescription bottles, and she was afraid of giving people the wrong medication. So she quit after 18, 20 years of doing that. And then went with this horrible depression when she was diagnosed with ushers, finally, at age 41. And, but she came out of that on her own and then had a second career as a counselor for Lighthouse for the Blind here in Chicago, a wonderful organization. And she was also the chief volunteer officer. She was on Governor Edgar's board in Springfield advising the committee on, on issues concerning deaf and blind matters. 
She was a lobbyist in Springfield, Illinois, a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. She became a, quite a force in the deafblind community, and that's why people, people flocked her, because she was an inspiration to a lot of people. I'm impressed by one of the quotes early in the book. I do not shrink from responsibility. I welcome it. That's right. That's John Kennedy's inauguration speech back in 1960, and I watched that speech, and I, I still play it now and then because it gives me great inspiration. I think that's why you mentioned earlier the marriage vow. I think people, uh, when you accept responsibility, to me that's what life's all about, and, and to see that through, and what more noble thing to do than try to make the world better, and I think what John Kennedy tried to do, and I think that's other people obviously have done, tried to do it. I think that's important. I mean, if you take a vow in marriage, you, you vow to help somebody, anything in life, I think it's very important that you keep that vow, and there's no more greater joy than helping people. Despite this woman of tremendous strength, she did not escape depression and associated anorexia and ultimately winds up in an emergency room. And what turned her around at that particular point? I think what turned her around is she realized, she told me, I was facing the end. She was physically ill. Her stomach was killing her, and she looked like a ghost. I left her on the hospital bed, and, and you know, she was white, had a white complexion anyway, and she looked like she just blended into the sheets. And I thought I was going to lose her, and I think she thought she was going to die too had she not gotten up and off of that depression. And, and she took a week off after that, went to my mother's house and by herself and stayed there for a week and came back and started to improve. I mean, she realized she, there's only one way to go. <laughs> you have no choice. I mean, in a situation like her or anybody, if you're knocked down in life and you stay down, your life is over. So you have to get up. There's only one choice, get up and fight. And she chose to fight. And I think after that illness, she realized if she stayed down in that depression, her life was over and she loved life. And I think that's what drove her on. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickert, and I'm speaking with Rich King, and we're discussing his wife as he knew her and how he's written so brilliantly about her in his best-selling book, My Maggie, which deals with a life of visually impaired and hearing loss. She does, however, begin to use facilities that before she had kind of shunned. Could you tell us how she got into what one would call the system for the visually impaired? Well, you know, Maggie did not want to be a burden on anybody, and that's why she became depressed. She said, my life is over. I'll be a burden on everybody the rest of my life. But when she finally realized that she had to live, had to live her life and keep going, we took her to an Illinois to a clinic, and they had a program for her, and she got a bunch of devices, a thing called a VTech, which allows you to read. It's a machine, a television. Actually, you put a book or a newspaper underneath the uh, slab there, and it enlarges the print, so she read that. She got special sunglasses. She got devices, alarm clocks that vibrated and also made loud noises. I mean, she got a bunch of things like that, and that just and obviously got the cane too. So she developed a whole new life. And believe me, the cane is the biggest thing because the cane freed her. The cane allowed her to uh, move around again. And once she learned to use it properly, she went all over downtown Chicago and, in fact, walked in the traffic now and then uh, precariously. But she survived everything. All those devices helped. All the technology helped. The FM hearing aids helped. All that stuff that comes around now. And she was always happy. In fact, she wrote papers on how grateful she was for the technology that this age brings. She met a man named Dan Davia at the assistance program for the disabled and also part of the Department of Rehabilitation Services in the state of Illinois. He commented on, use the cane. Right. It'll be like parting the Red Sea. Right. What does that mean? Well, that means, you know, Maggie was without a cane. She was obviously sight impaired, and she was trying to get by. When she was with me or her friend, Arlana Fakel, it was fine. But when she's by herself, she'd knock things over and she'd get embarrassed. And Davia's point was, look, you get a cane, people will know you're blind. They'll get out of your way. And it worked. I mean, you cannot try to 
fake it in life. I, I know a friend of hers, he tried to do the same thing. Uh, he had the same disease she had. He tried to fake it and found out he wasn't getting anywhere. So you know, once you get the cane and once people realize you have the cane, it gives you a certain freedom. They, they get out of your way and, and, and they'll help you out. And it made her life a lot easier. But it took Davia to convince her that because coming from a person who's sighted, it was different from a guy who was blind. Davia was blind. And Davia really lit into her and said, you got to get a degree. you got to do that. What do you want to do? Get a cane. And I think it, that's what worked for her. In the words of Edward R. Murrow, living a life and not an apology became hers. Would you say that? Murrow's one of my idols. I've read many books about Ed Murrow, and one of his favorite quotes is, he's talking about Britain during World War II with the Battle of Britain, and he said the British were living a life, not an apology, and they're fighting the Nazis, and I thought that was appropriate for Maggie. She lived the life. She did not back off. She didn't let her all her elements, the cancers and the sight and the hearing, she did not let her, that did not stop her from leading a wonderful life, and she is a very happy woman. Most of the book is not a somber litany of bad things. I mean, we had a lot of great times. There's the funny stories in there. She was a goofy woman. She did crazy things. She had charisma. Maggie had charisma. Anything she said or did had a lot of meaning to it, and that's what made her so special, and that's why people flocked her. You know, at the lighthouse, whenever there was somebody came in who had a problem with the diagnosis, with eye problems or a sight impaired, they sent the person to Maggie because they knew Maggie would, would cheer that person up because she'd been there, and she sure did. She was therapeutic, not only to the patients there, but she was therapeutic in my life. You could not feel sorry for yourself around Maggie, and that's perhaps the biggest gift anybody could get. Living with a person like that for so long is such a wonderful experience that you, you cannot imagine. One of the things that impressed me, and maybe you'll explain this to me, because it isn't real clear in the book, is she falls off a pier, she falls off a train station in Chicago, which is a terrifying experience and must have filled you with all types of dread. Later on in the book, however, when she becomes a, an advisor and a volunteer and a counselor to people who have hearing loss, she walks into a mirror in a downtown hotel and spills coffee all over herself on the way to a party. And her response is laughter at herself and looking at herself in a much different way. What was the process that took place? Well, Maggie never, you know, she never took herself seriously with anything. I mean, she was a down-to-earth, loving person, and everything she did was that way. I mean, her and Karen McCullough were, were at a convention when they ran into the mirror. Karen laughed. She's with together. We had one good eye. Karen was approaching the mirror thinking it was some other people. Obviously, it was, it was their own images, and they ran into their own images and spilled coffee all over the floor in the lobby of this hotel. And Maggie laughed and laughed and laughed, but she always laughed at herself. I mean... I never laughed at her, obviously, but she was never afraid to laugh at herself. That's the way she lived. But yeah, it served her well because she didn't get uptight about things. And it, was, it was a wonderful life she had. You know, we've talked about Usher syndrome beginning early in life, and very often the diagnosis is not made. Do you think if the, and in Maggie's case, I believe the diagnosis was ultimately made when she was 37 years old, do you think things would have been different for Maggie, that she might have changed or picked a career or a life different than what she did if the diagnosis had been made at four, six, eight years old? Well, that's the, one of the best questions I ever got about her, and that's the truth. No. In a way, I'm glad it worked out the way it did, and I think she was too. We had a somewhat normal life for a lot of years because her central vision was good. She had no peripheral vision when she was young. She had no night vision, but she didn't know. She thought everybody had that. So she lived a so-called normal life for throughout her teen years and her 20s, except for the hearing aids, of course, it was better that way because we, we had such great times. Sometimes it's better not to know. When she started having trouble reading the bottles at the hospital, then I think it became frustrating for her. At that point, yeah, I wish we'd have known a little earlier when she was an adult. But it's a great question because I think I'm glad we didn't know when we were younger because 
we didn't worry about it. We thought, well, this is going to be nerve damage. One doctor told us it's going to be nerve damage and won't get any worse. You'll have this, this slight problem, but it won't be that bad. Well, it got worse. It was progressive. We didn't know, and Dr. Fishman in Chicago, Gerald Fishman, finally diagnosed it as Usher syndrome, and then she went into depression. But I think had she known earlier, I think she had a great 20 years as a nurse, and she might not have had that had she known. I'd really like to thank Rich King today for being with us and telling us Maggie's story. If you think about the story, think about buying the book, think about Lighthouse for the Blind in Chicago, but also there are other lighthouses throughout the United States that help the visually impaired. And I want to really thank you for being our guest today. And I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.